may be seated. I probably don't need that much, John. I tend to project. Oh, thanks, man. How you guys doing? Good? Everybody's all right? Jake, that was hilarious, dude. <laughs> I love that uh, Dave had a four-hour conversation with you. Someday, Dave, I have to get a little insight into what the four-hour conversation was. Right, Sophie? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's going to kill me. So here we are. We're in Luke, and we're heading into this series on the book of Acts. And this is one of those moments in Luke that, um, in light of everything that has just happened, is remarkable. We've seen in the book of Luke the death on the cross of Jesus. And the resurrection has happened, and he's now appearing to his disciples before the ascension. And this is such a key moment in the history of the world. And, and not only is it a key moment for them, but it's really a key moment for us. And so I just want to take some time tonight, and let's walk through this together, this passage. And let's just, I just ask that you would tonight with me think about what it must have been like for these men and women and at the same time, we're going to draw some implications for ourselves and what God's calling us to do here at Renovation Church in relation to this passage. It's Luke chapter 24. It's the last chapter in the book of Luke. And I'm going to read verses 36 through 49. You can follow along. It's going to be up on the screen as well. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled. And frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that I myself, that I, I'm sorry, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Sounds like me. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. On the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Listen to verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. I'm going to jump down. I didn't put this in the passage, but I think it's relevant to read verses 50 to 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Amen. Let's pray again briefly and just ask God to open up his word to us, illuminate his word to us like he did to them in this passage. God, we just ask that you would open our eyes, lift the veil, Help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So, you know, as I thought of this, and it's interesting, Mike seems to give me every, as me and Mike talk about, you know, what we're going to talk about and communicate throughout, you know, particular series of, of scripture, Mike always gives me the one that has to do with witnesses, because he's like, it's a legal thing, so you got <laughs> so, um, for those of you who don't know, I used, to, I was a youth pastor for a long time, and then went to law school, and now I'm a prosecutor at the DA's office, and he said, the word witnesses in here, you got to do this, and I began to think about, what is a witness, you know, um, and it's interesting, the first thing I thought of, of course, you know, even though I, I do this all the time in my job, the first thing I thought of is Jack Nicholson, right? You can't handle the truth, right? How many of you guys think of that? That scene is such an incredible scene. And I should have put the clip up there, but you got Jack sitting on the stand and Tom Cruise, the young, you know, Jag lawyer who's, you know, beads of sweat coming down because he's challenging this colonel on the witness stand and he's trying to get out of him the reality of what had happened. And, and obviously, Jack Nicholson's character had been lying the whole time, and he was trying to get to the heart of the situation. He was trying to get to the truth. And, of course, he said, what do you want? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And then he, he you know, has a cup of water, and he, the music's in the background, and he's about, to, he's about to ask the question. The question, did you order the code red? Come on, are you guys, you guys remember that? And if he asks this question, he's alluding to the fact that this colonel is on the witness stand lying, which is a huge risk for him in this situation. If he can't get Jack Nicholson to admit that he ordered the code red, he's going to be court-martialed. And he kind of looks over at Demi Moore, you remember, and she's like, do it, no, don't do it. And he, you know, and he does it. He asks the question, did you order the code red? You're darn right I ordered the code red. You guys know the scene. What's the significance of that in the midst of this passage? What is the heart of this brief passage, and what is it trying to get at? I think this is, this is very significant, because if you look at this passage in context, you recognize that, and, and it's very hard for us in the abstract to think about this, but if you're these dudes, like, they, they hung with Jesus. The Messiah, the Christ, was, was present in their life, physically present in their life. They followed him. They heard him, they listened to him, they saw miracles. They saw him change the water, the wine, they, they saw him heal the leper, they saw him heal the blind man, they saw him heal the woman with the issue of blood. They witnessed these things, they saw it with their own eyes. And now, everything that they anticipated was going to happen, all their hopes and all their dreams that were wrapped in the Christ, the Messiah, in moments of the crucifixion, in, in many of their minds, everything was lost. He was killed. He hung on a cross. He had told them I was going to die and be raised again. But in the midst of the danger and them being scattered and people looking for them, are you one of his disciples? No, 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 I'm not one of his disciples because they were afraid. Now, three days after the crucifixion, he raises from the dead and the Christ appears to them. And as you see in the passage, what does it say? They're confused and they're frightened. How many of you guys think that's reasonable? <laughs> they're confused. And he comes and he stands before them and, and, and he stood among them, it says in verse 36. And he looks at them and he says, what? He says, peace to you. Because I think in the midst of, of witnessing the physical body of the resurrected Christ in this moment, they were frightened, they were confused. And he looked at them and he said, peace to you. And, and he spoke peace to them. Yep, it's me. Calm down. Peace. Relax. This is the real deal. Now, why did Jesus do these things? Well, as we're going to begin to see as we jump into the book of Acts, 
The church of Jesus Christ is about to be birthed. The church of Jesus is about to explode across the world and transform the face of the planet forever. And these men and women are witnesses to the physical, resurrected Christ. These are the first ones to, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, go. And they're going to bear witness to what they saw. And Jesus appears before them, and they see him. They witness it. They see the physical body of Jesus, and they're, and they're scared. They think, what, what, are we, what is this, a spirit? It says in the passage, they thought they had seen a spirit. And he says to them, no. In verse 38, you see that Jesus recognizes their doubt and their confusion about his actual physical resurrection. And so he appeals to their ability to see him, to hear him, and to touch him. He even invites them to touch and see that he's real, doesn't he? Look at verse 38. He says, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then in verse 39, see my hands, my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me, see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And, he, and when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet so they could bear witness to it. They could see it. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Think about that. It's, it's a disbelief for joy. It, it's almost as if they can't even believe it. I can't believe it. He's risen from the dead. He's standing before us. It's a dis disbelief for joy. I can't, I can't believe that Jesus is here as they're touching his hands and his feet, as they're physically seeing him. And he begins to demonstrate for them that he's not some disembodied spirit, that he's actually a physical resurrected body. And he says, get me something to eat. And he eats in front of them. They get him some broiled fish. It's paleo. Just kidding. Everybody's into the paleo diet now, right? <clears throat> no, not everybody. I'm not either. <laughs> he eats some broiled fish and shows them, look, touch. I got flesh. I've got bones. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. I want you people to bear witness to me. I want you to see me. I want you to know that I'm here. I want you to touch my body. I want you to touch the, my hands and my feet. I want you to see me eat fish because you are going to go and you're going to bear witness. You will be my witnesses starting here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and throughout the world. You're going to go and you're going to bear witness to the fact that I was with you, that I preached the gospel to you, that I died for your sins and I rose again and I physically stood in front of you. You're my witnesses. These men and women see it for themselves. They're inherently credible. They're what you would call in my line of work an eyewitness. I saw it. There's nothing more dramatic for, for us. You see it on TV all the time, but there's nothing more dramatic than the moment in the courtroom where someone who's been the victim or the eyewitness to a crime sits on the witness stand and we always ask the question do you see the person here in the courtroom now who did this to you 
And as the, I've spent the last six years in special victims, many times I've had child victims, adult victims, sit on the witness stand in that moment when they look over and go, him right there, that's the one. He's the one who did it to me. Such a dramatic moment because they get to speak verbally and testify as to what they experienced and as to what they saw and as to what they felt and as to what they heard, all their senses that were engaged in many times some of the most horrible moments of their life. They're able to verbally testify to the fact that right there, that's the guy that did it. The power of an eyewitness. That's who these men and women are in this moment. As Jesus appears to them. He says, right here. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Get me some fish. Let's eat together. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieve for joy, I can't believe it's him. There's, there's a... There's an expression of almost excitement and disbelief. Like, have you ever had that moment where someone comes home and you didn't expect them to be there? Maybe they've been gone for a long time and you go, I can't believe you're here. A disbelief for joy. So excited that it's you. They were marveling. He asked them if they had anything to eat. They gave him fish and he ate before them. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Why would he say this? He's saying this because he's, he's going further and convincing them that he is who he said he would be. He says, listen, guys, do you remember all the stuff I said to you through the time that we were together? That all the, the law and the Psalms and the prophet, I'm messing with my iPad, I'm sorry. He refers to his prior teaching. And he says concerning his, his, his teaching and his death and resurrection, do you remember all the things I spoke to you? This is me. And it's, it's a corroboration. As a witness, he's corroborating the fact that, remember, we had these conversations about the fact that I would die and in three days be risen again. Remember all the teaching, all the, all the prophecy about me that I taught you in the Psalms and the law and the prophets? It's all coming to fulfillment right now in me. This is who I am. And they, as people who were with him for those years, as people who heard his teaching, as people that began to recognize that, that he had taught from the law and the Psalms and the prophets in the Old Testament about who he was to be, that, that all of the Old Testament was pointing to him, all of a sudden it's corroborating, yes, you are who you say you are. Yes, this is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus before us, because how else would he know of what he had taught us before? He references something that they would know. Remember my prior teaching? Hey, guys, it's me. It's me. He corroborates he said it to them, if you, if you remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 21, if you can turn there quickly, in Luke 9, verse 21, he says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In chapter 9, he had already told them about what was going to happen. 
that he was going to be disgraced, that he was going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the elders. He was going to be killed, and, and on the third day, he was going to be raised again. And you can imagine that his disciples, as they see the resurrected Christ standing before them, are beginning to go, oh my goodness, he did say that before. And all the dots are being connected, and their eyes are beginning to be opened up as to who he is and what he was talking about this whole time they were with him. That when he died on the cross, all hope wasn't lost. In fact, their hope was secured. And now that he's risen from the dead and the resurrected Christ is before them, they're beginning to connect the dots of all his prior teaching. Verse 45 describes this even further. Look at Luke 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds. To understand the scriptures. The veil at this moment, think about this for them. The veil at this moment was lifted. They had this massive paradigm shift of everything that they had thought. All of a sudden, he connected the dots of redemptive history that they had known from their childhood. As they learned about the Old Testament, as they learned about the prophets and the Psalms and the law of Moses, as they learned about the Old Testament, as they sought, sat with him for years and heard his teaching related to all of this, as they heard him talk about his death and his resurrection, here now, in this moment, the resurrected Christ stands before them and he opens their mind. He illuminates, as Paul talks about, their mind to the scriptures. In redemptive history, the dots are connected in their brain and they go, oh, that's what this was. That's what this was all about. I love paradigm shifts, don't you? When I think of paradigm shift, I can't help but think of this story. I had a friend who was a pastor out in Australia, and he used to travel through this airport. And he tells the story of how in this one particular airport, there was a, a place that sold this bag of donuts. Anybody ever had a bag of donuts? It's glorious. It was a bag of donuts, fresh Freshly made donut holes with like cinnamon on them and they put it in a bag and shake it up and you have this bag of donuts. And he said, I was looking so forward as he was traveling the world and he was speaking around the world. I was looking so forward to stopping in this particular airport to go to this particular place to get my favorite bag of donuts. And so he did. He got his bag of donuts and he goes over and he's traveling through the airport. He's excited to eat his bag of donuts and he sits down at the airport area where he's supposed to board and he sits down and a woman is sitting next to him. He reaches into the bag of donuts next to him, and he picks out a donut, and he eats it. And he said, this woman gave him a dirty look. She looked at him like, what are you doing? And she reached in the bag of donuts. She pulls out a donut, and she eats it. And he thinks, you got to be kidding me. How rude is this woman that she would take my favorite bag of, there's only so many bags, donuts in this bag of donuts. And he's, he looks at her and gives her a dirty look, and he grabs a donut, and he eats it. And then she looks at him, she grabs the bag of donuts, stands up, and storms off. And he's thinking, this woman just stole my bag of donuts. You've got to be kidding me. And he's incredibly angry. He's incredibly offended. He doesn't want to make a scene. And he's like, oh, my God, I can't go all the way back. And, you know, very upset. Gets on the airplane, finally bored, sits down. And as he sits down, he, he kind of sits down. He's going to take his jacket off, and he hears a crunch. And he feels in his jacket. And he opens it up, and there's his bag of donuts. How many of you know at that moment he had a paradigm shift? 
He, he instantly realized, oh my goodness, she was, I was the, okay. <laughs> That's a paradigm shift, right? This is what these guys had in this moment. Jesus illuminates their minds. I've had these moments in my life. As the New Testament describes, as Paul describes, that only God can open our minds to the scripture. I remember moments in particular sitting in my college dorm, feeling the weight of guilt in my life. I remember feeling broken as a young college student who went to what I would consider a legalistic Bible school where I thought everything I did was wrong. I had this picture of God up in heaven as this big eye in the sky ready to thump me every time I did something wrong. And, and I remember feeling awful and having a complete misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for me. And I picked up the word of God in conjunction with another book I was reading by a man named Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel, and I was reading about the grace of God. And I had one of those moments sitting in my favorite brown chair. How many of you guys had a favorite chair in college? Come on, I slept in that chair all the time. Sitting in my favorite brown chair up in my dorm room with the door shut, weeping, because for the first time it was as if all the stuff I had learned from Sunday school and church and the thousand sermons I had sat in for my entire life, like they were piles of manuscript on dry pallets in a warehouse in my brain. It was as if poof, someone had lit a match. And poof, the word of God illuminated to me. I remember the veil to some degree in my life being lifted and feeling like, God, this isn't about me. This isn't about everything I do or don't do. It's not about what I am going to do tomorrow or what I did yesterday. It's about what he has done. He loves me despite myself, not based on my performance. His love doesn't change. I remember the moments of the gospel being revealed to me in a way that only he can do through his spirit as he illuminates your heart. Has the veil been lifted in your eyes and in mine? You could ask yourself the question every day, am I consumed with the news and am I consumed with the economic crisis that the world finds itself in? Do I get up every day and think about Syria and the difficulties overseas and in the Middle East and terrorism and President Obama? Do I every day think about the crime rate in the city of Syracuse and, and all the difficulty of my life? Do I every day get up in the morning and am I consumed about the fact that I have to make enough to pay my bills and to somehow get my kids through college and somehow find some time and some money maybe for some recreation and some rest? What am I consumed with? And is somehow off in the distance this very, very small, bleak thought of this Jewish teacher way off in the distance? Or has there come a moment in my life where I realize that he is everything, that he is in control, that he is the sovereign God of the universe who's in control of every aspect of your life, and he's not distant. He didn't just send this earth spinning and your life spinning and then go off in a distance, but he's the God of the universe who's interested, 
who's available, who's engaged in your life, and he loves you. Is the veil of the reality of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, has the veil of our eyes been lifted so that we understand the significance of who he is and what he's done? In this moment, in verse 45, the scriptures were illuminated to his disciples, and they understood who he was, really, and the significance of what he had done. And here stands before them the resurrected Christ, and they see it. They bear witness to it. In verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Here's the beginning as these men and women go throughout the world as witnesses of these things. I think at this moment we realize sitting here that we didn't physically see him. But the witnesses of his physical resurrected body brought the gospel and established the church of Jesus Christ that grew around the world. And now listen to one of them. If you would turn with me to first Peter. Peter, who was there, writes this. First Peter, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. I'm going to go there now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter, who is there, is bearing witness to us. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice through now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that amazing? That's my story. Peter, who saw him, has borne witness to him. I've never seen him Physically, I didn't see the physical resurrected body of Jesus Christ, but I have seen salvation. God has, through his spirit, illuminated to me what he says in his word as he, as he makes available to all of us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he loved us, that he died for us, that he's risen from the dead. And so here's what I ask you tonight as I ask myself the same thing. If you are going to bear witness to him, sit and ask yourself, what have you seen? Have you seen what Peter just described? In your life, 
What has God done for you? Are you a witness to something? I love Jake's story that he, he in his desire to marry Brenna, asked her out, courted her, went after her, but, but on his own as he left, God did something in his heart, right? Apart from his he didn't just he didn't just come to know Jesus because he wanted to marry Brenna, although that may have been in the back of his mind somewhere. <laughs> no, he didn't. Jesus came and illuminated himself. Jesus came and he moved in the heart of Jake Thurston, and then he brought them back together. As I think through my life, I can see, and, and it's easy to do as you look back, the hand of God in every area of my life orchestrating his plan because he loves me and he's engaged and he's involved. Do you see his hand in your life? Do you see, can you bear witness to what he's done in your life? Is there a moment in your life where you came face to face with the cross of Jesus Christ and you recognize that he died for you, that he loves you? Can I tell you something? It's very easy to say he died for us and he loves us as if somehow God is partial to groups. Somehow that's easier. But in those moments when you're alone and no one else is around and you maybe find quiet deep down in your heart, do you recognize that he loves you? That his death and his resurrection bear ultimate significance for you. Not us, for you. That his death and his resurrection makes all the difference in your life. It is the most significant thing that has ever happened for you. Because he lifted the veil. If he hasn't, ask him. Get in that moment and say, this is real, if this is true, Jesus, lift the veil in my heart. Help me to recognize my need, first of all, my desperate need for you. Help me to see the moment at which that objective truth, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that objectively the resurrected body of Jesus appeared to these disciples, the fact that it happened, help me see how significant that is for me. That now you've forgiven my sins. You've paid the price I deserve to pay. You were my substitution so that I no longer have to pay for my own sin. It's been purchased. And I'm free because of what you've done. Ask him if you haven't seen that in your life. Ask him to lift the veil. Ask him to show you. Secondly, if you have seen it, you should be compelled, we should be compelled to speak of it. How can anyone hear if there's not a preacher, the scripture says? How can anyone hear if no one tells them? If Jesus has done something absolutely fantastic in your life, if Jesus has come and done something so significant in your life, you are the only one sucking oxygen on planet earth that knows about it unless you open your mouth and tell somebody. You are the credible witness that knows the truth 
that can sit on the proverbial witness stand of your life and tell somebody, this is what God has done for me. An old youth pastor when I was a young man who's actually passed away, Wendell Smith, used to say, if Jesus just saved you to go to heaven, you might as well go now. Right? He's done something in your life for you to bear witness about it. We have this thing at Missio or at Renovation now. Sorry. <laughs> How many of you are sitting here at Renovation Church thinking to yourself, didn't we just do this, plan a church? But God's called us to be witnesses. So downtown church is downtown. We need a church here, don't we? We need people here in this geography to bear witness. And so one of our core outcomes, our, our found, foundational values at our church, God, truth, love, and mission, and out of, out of us wrapping our lives around who God is, his love for us, his truth, and his mission in our lives, out of us should flow what? One of the five things that should flow is our grace story. I used to call it as a youth pastor years ago, the second greatest story ever told. I stole that from Doug Fields. The second greatest story ever told is the story of what God's done in your life. If you haven't thought about it, if you haven't contemplated how to share it, as a church, we need to do that. You need to sit down and write it out. You need to sit down in a moment of quiet and prayer and say, God, help me to understand more fully what it is you've done for me, how it is you've changed my life. And, and God has called us, as he called these men who physically witnessed him, to now bear witness to, to what he's done in our lives. How can you do that? It's not an intimidating thing. Listen, I, I get yelled at by the sandwich board guy every day downtown. Can I tell you that? He doesn't even know I know Jesus, and he yells at me every day. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about us as people who have witnessed something, bearing witness to a slice of life. What has happened in your life? What is your grace story? So many of you have so many different stories to share. I know. And, and what's wonderful about the body of Christ and us as a church is we get to bear witness to each other's stories. I share other people's stories sometimes more than I share my own because it's more relevant. But I got to tell you something. God in your life never wastes a hurt. He will use what he's brought you through in your life to share and to bear witness to what he can do in your life. Amen? I had a buddy who was a part of my youth staff years ago when I was a youth pastor who could not get home from youth group without stopping at a bar and getting hammered. He was a raging alcoholic, and none of us knew until there came some moments in his life where it collided with life and he was unable to function anymore and, and I was able to be a part of his life and, and, and attempt to hold him up. And God stepped into his life through the help of other people that had struggled with that type of addiction. And I'll never forget the days that he came into my office and he threw down his 30-day chip. And he came into my office and he threw down his six-month chip. 
And he came into my office, and we went out to eat, and we celebrated. One year, buddy, you made it one year. And we worshiped God together. We were grateful for what God had done in his life as he brought him out of this addiction. And can I tell you, down the road in the midst of my ministry, how many people I ran into who struggled with the same thing. And, and I began to recognize that my grace story doesn't include this struggle. And I would say, you know what? You got to go talk to my buddy because he knows how to share with you and relate to what's going on in your life. And God caused him to bear witness to something in his life that he was now able as a witness to share with credibility to somebody who was struggling with something similar in a way that I could never dream. I love the way God ministers to different people in different slices of life. I'll never forget, uh, before Sophie was born, Trisha and I, our first pregnancy we had, Trisha lost in a miscarriage. And, and it, that was such a difficult time for us, but I'll never forget how many people came out of the woodwork and said, that's my experience too, let me share with you how God brought us through that. And now Trish has that story of how God ministered to her. Your grace story isn't always just out there hitting someone with the word of God, that's not it at all. Your grace story is being at work and talking to someone who's struggling with their marriage and saying, you know what, let me explain to you, man, let me show you how God helped me with that struggle as we struggled through this thing. Whatever God's done in your life, you bear witness to. I love that I have had the opportunity, and Dave, I hope you don't mind, uh, to bear witness to how the grace of God has held up the Ardner family as they've walked through the loss of someone who's so integral to their lives as, as Gail passed away from cancer. And, and, and to see your story and to see you guys walk through that with incredible grace from God is such a testimony to each of us around you of, of what the grace of God is. And as other people struggle with that difficulty, I have no capacity to speak with credibility but you do. It's amazing to me. The grace stories that sit in this room, if you are quiet and do not speak, no one's ever going to hear them. God has called each of us to get on the witness stand and testify to what he's done. These men did. These men after they saw this, they went, turned the world upside down. The history of the world completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ because these men bore witness to what they saw. He's calling us to be witnesses as well. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for what you've done in each of our lives. I know it sounds cliche, but it's so true, the, the mosaic that you are building of each of us and in each of our lives as you piece these things together in your sovereignty, as you direct us and lead us towards your plan, as, you, as we recognize this evening that you love people so much more than we do, and yet you let us be a part of what you're doing right here. Help us, first of all, to recognize who you are. I ask that the veil would be lifted in each of our lives, that you would illuminate to us more and more who you are, what you've done, the significance of your gospel, 
and that somehow, God, through your spirit, you would give us wisdom, boldness, as you stated in this passage, that they would wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that today you empower us through your spirit to speak your word. We can't change a heart, but you've given us a story. You've given us a grace story of who you are. And as we speak, as your word speaks, you do something in people's hearts that we can't explain. You've done it in our heart, and we trust you for the lives of people in this community, for the lives of people that you have surrounded us with in our family, in our workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Use us as your witnesses. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.